instruments. Now we're ready to go on our fourth message this in this series. This one's got the cheekiest of the titles. Okay. Purity, peace, and unity. One out of three ain't bad. <laughs> and uh, as I put there, this is a message for church leaders. <laughs> if all, yeah, if all the ministers and elders will sit down here in front, uh, we'll uh, we'll get real close. Yeah, we all have to sit on the floor. That that. That'd be a good, uh, good lesson for us. Okay. But it's a, it's a message for leaders that everybody ought to hear because I think sometimes as leaders we need help from our, our people. We, uh... Okay. Can we uh, hold the noise down out there? If you're not going to come in, just be silent so we can get started. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read this passage before we pray, and then we'll get into the material. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given just as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up as each part does its work. Let's pray. Lord, it's not a mere formality for us to, again, ask you to bless our study of your word. For we know that there are so many things within us, even as new creatures in Christ, that lead to confusion lead us to suppress certain truths, even as we exalt others, uh, to, be, um, to have tunnel vision, to be short-sighted, not to see ourselves as others see us. And so we need your Spirit using the Word to search us, to open us up uh, and expose us to yourself, um, to ourselves and to each other so that we might 
turn away from the sin that so easily entangles us and grow more and more in our ability to come alongside and give help, encouragement, rebuke, uh, correction where that's necessary. Uh, And Lord, we pray for the leaders in our churches especially that we all might set an example to the flock of the kind of things that your word requires of all of us. And we pray especially that you would deliver us from the temptation to live by a double standard, which is so often prevalent with people in any kind of leadership. So Lord, please guide and, and bless us in this, uh, in this study. Um, Lord, you know um, this is the hardest one for me to deliver. It's the closest to home. Uh, the one that's the most searching in my own mind and conscience, and and I pray that it will be for all of us. Um, Not so that we might finally reproach ourselves, but so that we might finally repent and turn and be healed and restored once again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Got something in my eye, sorry. Ministers in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, as many of you know, take a vow at the time of their ordination to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the Gospel and the purity, the peace, and the unity of the Church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto us on that account. It's uh, the sixth of the ordination vows prescribed by our form of government. Ruling elders and deacons on their part make the same commitment in slightly different language. They are asked, do you promise to seek the purity, the peace, and the unity of the church? I don't know whether the uh, omission means that if they face opposition or persecution, they don't have to do it anymore or not, but uh, uh, I think that's uh, just uh, for brevity's sake. How do leaders of the church, as examples to all of us, balance these important values? And we could think of them as three things, I think probably more as two things. Peace and unity really go together, and purity, the concern for truth and the outworking of the truth, um, they uh, can be distinguished. Uh, I gave you a sheet yesterday, if you happen to pick it up, maybe you haven't glanced at it yet, um, this one about... The Puritans on Church Unity. One of them is an appendix from uh, Ian Murray's book, Evangelicalism Divided, and the other one I think was printed on the inside of the the jacket. I actually didn't put this book on the uh, reading list. Uh, It slipped my mind and it caught my eye briefly uh, the other day as I was uh, putting some things together. But it's kind of interesting because on one side of the page you get uh, quotations commending Um, the pursuit of unity, and the others warning against the dangers of uh, tolerance of of, uh, aberrant views and and the idea that we ought to all just get along and be friends and stuff. So you you can take a look at that. But that kind of expresses the ambivalence that many Reformed leaders feel. Um, Is it peace or is it unity or purity? And that's why I said sort of waggishly, uh, one out of three Ain't bad if you can get even that much. I wonder, and here again I'm I'm speaking uh, from my own perspective, how much of the disunity and strife in the church can be properly laid at the doorstep of the leaders? Their sins either of 
commission or maybe as significantly their sins of omission. Uh, I'll just be honest with you. This is the hardest of the eight messages for me to give. Um, some of it's going to be suggestive. Uh, I almost want to say tentative, although I really am convinced that at least for this leader, I need to hear all of this, and maybe others of you will uh, find the same way. Um, a lot of uh, soul-searching in preparing the message, but really this has been going on in my mind for a couple or a couple of years or so, and it's kind of the fruit to date, although I don't think this process for me personally is anywhere near finished yet. And so I, I offer it to you humbly in Jesus' name and ask you to... Uh, to consider. Um, and I do think we sometimes need to have the people in our churches give us another perspective on, uh, we, I, mean, I, I can get so sure of myself in my own mind, what I'm saying, what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, and um, it's good sometimes uh, to have someone else, sometimes it's your spouse, uh, sometimes it's um, other members, trusted friends in the congregation who can say, Pastor, come over here, let's have a cup of coffee, we need to talk a few things over. So that's why I want you all to hear what um, I have to say to the leaders in particular. And, and please, brothers, know in all of this I'm pointing my finger at myself first. I have no sense um, I ought to be down there with you rather than up here um, presenting this. But you invited me, so now you're going to get it. As examples to the flock, then, in the first place, elders have a special duty to promote peace and unity as well as purity in the church. Paul's concern as we enter Ephesians 4 is, as he states in verse 3, maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Even in his imprisonment, indeed, especially because of his imprisonment, Paul has this concern heavily upon his heart. I mean, he must have asked, like perhaps uh, those of you who have been seriously injured uh, or ill. I know it's come into my mind a few times uh, during hospitalizations. What will happen to the church when I'm gone? Not out of a spirit of being indispensable, but just we all live daily with such a sense of what's left to be done, what's still undone. And if we should suddenly be taken out of the picture, what will happen to our flocks, to the people entrusted to our care? And I'm sure that the, despite the triumphal uh, announcements that Paul gives us from prison that give us so much strength and courage in the face of opposition, he must have had those times when he, he thought about what would be uh, going on with the church uh, if he was gone. And so he, in, in imprisonment, he's especially urgent and emphatic about this matter of the unity uh, of the body of Christ. And Paul knows uh, that his imprisonment physically is just an expression of his imprisonment in terms of his calling as an apostle. He gets locked up in jail because he's already been locked up as a prisoner, as a bondservant of Jesus the Lord. And indeed, as you look at this section, Paul is really practicing what he is about to preach to leaders of the church in Ephesus. 
Paul reminds the church that her unity is in the triune God, first and foremost. God is the supreme one and many. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And as Van Til reminded us of the equal ultimacy of the one and the many in the triune Godhead, so that one and many um, uh, relationship is to be expressed in the unity as well as the diversity of the body of Christ. And I just remind us all again, we do not create the unity of the body of Christ. That, as we saw yesterday, is in Jesus Christ Himself. Rather, we are called to make every effort to maintain the unity of the church. Within that unity, there is a rich diversity. And here, Paul focuses particularly on the uh, gifts of leadership, but in 1 Corinthians 12, which we'll look at tomorrow, God willing, the whole membership and the rich diversity of gifts within the entire congregational body of Christ are in view. And so he speaks about uh, those uh, gifted men that God has given to the church. The risen Christ gives gifts in the person of apostles, and prophets, and evangelists, and pastors and teachers, or pastor-slash-teachers, elders. And he tells us in verses 12 and 13 what the purpose of such leadership is. To prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So our job as leaders, particularly as ministers and elders, is to equip and train all of the people of God for the work of service, for the ministry, and the effect of that ministry is for the body to be built up in unity and in maturity, the goal being to replicate the fullness of Christ, actually to express the fullness of Christ in His body. And so the job belongs to the people of God, the training, the equipping to the leaders. And the goal, again, is unity and maturity in love. And so as elders are called to be examples to the flock, to treat teach not only by precept, but also by example, we have to be modeling love and the peaceful fruit of righteousness before God's people. They should see, in a sense, among the elders of the church, and to a degree the elders and the deacons serving together, a kind of a microcosm, a a pilot project, uh, an illustration of the kind of unity that ought to be worked out in detail in the congregation. And that's why it's so tragic when conflict uh, and, uh, and uh, church politicking and other kinds of struggles exist among the leaders, um, let alone when those divisions are then reproduced. I mean, imagine thinking back to the last hour when um, if Paul, rather than saying, who is Apollos, who is Peter, and who <coughs> is Paul, he had began to say, 
yeah, you know, I really do have the inside track here, and I will gather disciples to myself. And, you know, Peter kind of ticks me off sometimes anyway, and so let's let his people go that way. I mean, if Paul had exploited the differences that were already there, rather than laying down his own life and his own interests, so to speak, to overcome those differences, I mean, the church would have been destroyed before it ever got going in the first place. So we as elders and as teachers in the church have to set an example of this kind of peacemaking. And I think oftentimes we are the worst culprits rather than those who mitigate that, that danger. We have to be, you have to be as leaders, examples of energetic activity promoting the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. As hard as anybody else is working to promote the unity of the body of Christ, you should be working twice as hard to do those things that are necessary in order to draw the disparate elements of the churches together in the truth, which is in Christ Jesus. We have to give our people the tools, and then we have to show them how to use them. And here again, you know, you can buy a, a blender at Target and get the book out uh, written in, you know, the bilingual languages uh, that, uh, that those booklets are written in and figure out how to use it. But much better if you learn as an apprentice from someone who can show you the tools of the trade and then with his own hands, with his own mind, with his own heart, show you how to put those tools to use. And that's the kind of work uh, I'm afraid in this day and age we try to do too much pastoral, distance, uh, pastoral ministry at a distance. Now, that's what we need to be. If you'll permit me a, a few minutes of, um, I guess I call this an autobiographical counterexample. Um, and I, I just offer my experience because I don't think it's completely unique, at least for my generation of leaders in the church. And... Uh, and um, maybe will help us see where at least some of our, our problems arise. I was converted in high school in an evangelical Christian school and um, soon began to attend church on my own. My parents were not believers. and uh, I was in the 10th grade and almost immediately somebody said, we need a volunteer to teach the 7th grade boys Sunday school. And I thought, well, okay, you need somebody, I'll do it. So I started right away. I was going to a Christian school, so I had a Bible class all week long in Christian school, and so I just took all my notes on Sunday, and I taught the very same thing that I was learning to the seventh grade boys, and they thought having a high school guy for a teacher was the greatest thing since sliced bread. After that, I got involved in youth group and leadership and so forth um, and uh, tried to learn the ropes of the evangelical theology of the day. Then I went to college, and um, while I was in college, uh, towards the end of my first year and second year, I, I met Greg Bonson, who had by that time become close friends with Dennis Johnson. And, and I was sort of a spectator to that wonderful, dynamic, discipling relationship. Um, Greg was teaching us the Reformed faith, and, and we were teaching him, and, and uh, it, was, it was heady stuff. And that was my first exposure to the Reformed faith. And I found it exhilarating. Uh, I had come by that point, and it wasn't very long, to, to begin to think that the church that I was attending was sort of recycling a, a fairly small, short list of doctrines, with heavy emphasis, of course, on prophecy and eschatology and the end of the world stuff. 
Uh, and, and I was hearing the same things kind of over and over again, and I was beginning to think maybe, maybe this is really all Christianity has to offer. And then in hearing about the Reformed faith and beginning to be discipled in that, I mean, it was, it was uh, like the bottom dropped out all of a sudden, and I realized that in a thousand lifetimes I wouldn't be able to get the slightest handle on what the Bible was all about. Uh, the people in my home church got upset at that, uh, as you might imagine, as I stopped being premillennial, as I stopped being Ar- Arminian, and even as I began to distance myself from their Baptistic beliefs, and they got pretty mean about it. And so early on, I was pushed into a kind of a defensive mode of having to argue for the changes in my view and my practice, and uh, pretty soon they weren't so eager to have me leading in the youth group, and they weren't all that excited about me teaching um, uh, and, uh, and so the conflict was on from, from early times. There were a lot of arguments during college with fellow students who were broadly evangelical, and I won most of the arguments, and Greg won all of the arguments. <laughs> and, uh, and I had a, a sense of having been theologically abused by evangelicalism. You know, you never quite know when you learn something new, um, whether the people didn't teach it to you because they, they overlooked it or they didn't think it was important. So when you'd go back and say, well, what about this verse or what about this verse or what about that verse? And then you begin to see the kind of serious scripture twisting that's going on there, the, the serious suppression of certain biblical emphases. You begin to think, hey, I've been lied to. And, uh, and we don't appreciate that very much. And so there was a, a healthy dose of reactionary in me, uh, and as I mentioned yesterday, I was uh, eager enough to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, I wouldn't, re- I wouldn't sing just as I am for years after I left the uh, evangelical church. Uh, praise God, I, I, I got back to it and realized what a wonderful expression of Christian faith uh, that hymn is. Then I went to seminary. Uh, uh, Greg drugged Dennis and me off to seminary with him. Dennis wanted to be a minister. Being a minister was the last thing on my mind, but I had to so-called kill a year before Sherry graduated from college and we could get married. So I thought, well, you might as well kill a year in seminary as as the next place. (laughs) And uh, so off we went to Philadelphia. And um, there I got exposed to so much Reformed theology, I really thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I mean, for sure. Van Til, John Frame, Dick Gaffin, and dare I say it, Norman Shepard. Wow, it was heady, heady wine. And I, I was delighted in it. Now, most of the people there were either Reformed or they were Evangelicals in, tradi- in transition, so there was still lots of room for arguments. Uh, and we would argue about everything. Uh, my best friend in seminary, Dana Stoddard, and I used to argue all night long on Saturday night even about points that we agreed on. <laughs> Matter of fact, argument became a way of life. I mean, it was just, you know, it, it's like little cubs. You know, they're just, they just want to fight all the time. <laughs> and and, and that, uh, that grew up there. And again, you'd win some of the arguments, you'd lose some of the arguments, a lot of them were undecided, but it didn't really matter because you were arguing. And that's what students do. And there was, for me during those years, a growing sense that there was a church out there that needed straightening out. And we 
the graduates of 1973 were just the ones to do it. And as I got out into the ministry, I I would meet some of the seasoned pastors, and I say this with deep shame now, I was very contemptuous of some of them. I thought they'd lost their edge, or maybe they'd lost their nerve. They weren't ready to fight like I was ready to fight. I love theology. And, you know, I hung out with smart people, so I always had a reputation for being way smarter than I am. But if you surround yourself with the right people, you know, you can kind of fly under the radar. I like to study, and as you all know, those of you who are pastors, new pastors need to spend a lot of time in the study, a lot of time in the books, preparing sermons and Bible studies and so on and so forth. And so I, I could hold up in the library for, uh, in, my, in my study for days on end, preparing sermons and all of these different kinds of things. Those were the years in my early ministry when the theonomy controversy was getting warmed up. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, and I got a reputation early on. Uh, most of it, as I say, was reflected as a kind of a hardcore champion of, uh, of the true faith. And uh, so then years pass by, go on from there. Um, <clears throat> as a theonomist, identified as a theonomist, uh, I was pretty quickly marginalized in the OPC. You know, there, there never has so far been a, uh, a discipline case where theonomy was the main issue. But guys who have that reputation were, were uh, moved out to the, to the fringes. Um, and so I got used to being an outsider. And I only mention that not to say, oh, poor boy. <laughs> but to just say, if you think you're an outsider and you're always going to be an outsider, that kind of kills any enthusiasm to try to work to build up and preserve the unity of the body of Christ. And, um, you know, during those years, and I was talking to someone just uh, during the coffee break, I mean, some of those fights were so ugly that some people just didn't even want to go to Presbyterian meetings or to large church functions because they just wanted, didn't want to hear all the nastiness. It didn't even really matter which side you were on. It was, it was pretty ugly oftentimes. The, um, the battle was long and wearying, uh, but years were going by, and I, by God's mercy, was maturing, doing more and more pastoral work, less time holed up in the study, more time in the homes and in the lives of my people. Uh, and I just spent less time devoted overtly to controversy. I mean, in the early days, I was a whole lot more concerned what was happening in the church and what was wrong with the church than what was wrong with Mrs. Smith, who had asked me if I would come and call on her, and I just postponed the call because I was going to study, and I was too busy for that kind of thing. And then I got put on the Judicial Committee in Southern California, and that was a whole new wild chapter in my life. But through all of that, there was a growing concern to balance the concerns for peace and unity on the one hand with the what I had always treated as the unquestionable priority. If you asked me one out of three, which is it going to be, it would always be purity, 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 purity. That to me was a no-brainer. Uh, but with more experience in every way, more failure, more sin on my part, and consequently, by God's grace, more mercy, and I hope more humility, and above everything else, I think more love for Christ and for his people and for the leaders of his people. 
even people who were on the other side of the aisle who disagreed with me very sharply or I with them on important issues of truth. And that brings me up to today. Is my experience as a minister growing up in the OPC over 30 years plus uh, all that unique? Now, some of you guys have been here longer than me, and some of you are just getting started. And so you might think, oh boy, if that's going to be the story of my life, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't think it's all that unique. And if it is, then uh, praise God. Um, I'd like that to, to not be characteristic. But there is a kind of a quality about the OPC. Uh, and I, I was interested to just take a look at, uh, I don't know if you've seen this little uh, uh, pamphlet that's over here on the table, J. Gresham Machen, The OPC and the Problem of Christian Controversy. And uh, it's written by D.G. Hart, a, le- a letter, uh, d- uh, address that he gave to the Philadelphia Presbytery of the OPC d- back in November of 1996. But he sort of undertakes to um, defend and uh, urge us to return to the combativeness uh, of the early days of the OPC and um, uh, says that people who have experienced what I've experienced have in effect, lost their nerve uh, uh, and um, are looking for a kinder, gentler uh, Orthodox Presbyterian church. And, and I only, I'm not trying to throw rocks at, at Dr. Hart as much as to say we're still thinking that we have to choose between one or the other. We've long since believed that we can have a pure unity. So which is it going to be? And, and uh, the people who want unity at the expense of purity, they're going to be the liberals, and the conservatives are going to hold to the truth no matter what, and they're going to be uh, on the other side. And that sort of seems like that's where we're stuck as Orthodox Presbyterians. Now, I recognize that my experience in the OPC is not comprehensive. I've only had two churches in my years of ministry, and I've spent most of my time in the, in the Presbytery of Southern California, so I can't even, and I've never served, well, served on a couple of special GA committees, but I've never been part of the, uh, the uh, sort of uh, upper echelon where people get the bird's eye view of what the OPC is like. <clears throat> I'm not on any of the grapevines, you know, so I hear about things way late. Um, and so I, I, so all of that to say my exposure may be very, very limited, but these are my observations for what it's worth in terms of some of the characteristics of our church that may be a pitfall for us as leaders and as people. There is, I think by all acknowledgement, or has been at least, uh, an academic bent to the leadership of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I don't know how much of that is uh, the OPC attracts men who have an inclination that way and how much of it is the result of training. The OPC form of government says that it is highly reproachful to religion and dangerous to the church to entrust the preaching of the gospel to weak and ignorant men. And therefore, they need to get a Bachelor of Arts degree. They need to go to a uh, seminary before they can be licensed and ordained under normal circumstances. Sometimes there are waivers. So that idea is we want our leaders not to be weak or ignorant, and I think we can all applaud that. But how can we have a well-educated and a well-trained ministry without turning pastors into frustrated academics? That's the question that I had to wrestle with. 
I mean, I never really wanted to teach in an academic institution. I just wanted to do all of the other stuff that academics get to do. Read the books, write the papers, and, of course, argue, argue, argue. In my professional lifetime, some seminaries have recognized the problem and tried to make corrections, but it just seems to be a problem that is strongly resistant to change. A few years ago, I think it was 1999, Professor John Frame made these comments to students on the eve of their graduation from Westminster Seminary in California. The Pharisees didn't understand that preachers and teachers have a responsibility to the people that hear them. You must be there with your people, not only in church, but afterward, to help them through their misunderstandings, to help them learn to live out of thankfulness. You need to communicate the Word in your actions as well as your words. You need to present the Word with a gentleness that comes from knowing how much God has forgiven you. Man, I wish you'd have said that to me when I graduated. And if you can't do that, you're not ready for ministry. He goes on, On the subject of humility and pride, after two or three years of seminary, you probably don't know nearly as much as you think you do. There is so much more to learn than we can teach in three years. I confess I'm both amused and appalled at a certain syndrome I've noticed in a few graduates, guys who were C and D students in seminary, who barely pass their ordination exams, who after they are ordained suddenly decide to present themselves as experts on all the difficult theological issues of the day. Please understand that a theological degree does not automatically entitle you to pontificate thoughtlessly on every theological issue. Only a huge amount of pride could make you think that it does. Guilty as charged. Knowledge without humility, he says, is ludicrous and useless. Knowledge without love is also destructive, Paul teaches us. It tears down rather than builds up the church. It feeds the error we just discussed, for it succeeds only in puffing up the preacher, in feeding his pride. Indeed, knowledge without love is not knowledge in the fullest sense. Knowledge without love, distorts the truth so as to make it unrecognizable, so as to turn it into falsehood. Well said, John. There's a kind of theological pugnaciousness. It's interesting that an elder, according to Paul, is not to be quarrelsome, but for some reason when we talk about theology, uh, that rule is sort of set aside by common consent. Um, <clears throat> Paul again tells Titus, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Paul didn't even know about the internet. <laughs> Guys think they need to stake out their own territory and because so many things have been said again and again and again and again, that sort of forces them to the fringes to find some new territory to make their own, and that leads uh, to extremism. Um, I suppose many of us would like to be able to be the Martin Luther of our generation, or maybe the Grand Inquisitor, as the case may be. Listen to these sage words of David Powlison. I think this, I, I really should have copied this quote for you because this one needs to go in your Bibles. Controversy 
even for good causes, tends to create tunnel vision and to breed ungodly attitudes. We may be exactly right about our particular issues, but narrowed truth becomes unbalanced truth. It loses the ability to listen and be corrected. Narrowed truth becomes half-truth and broadly false. Narrowed truth loses love and the redemptive modus operandi. As it does so, it becomes reactive error. It becomes increasingly distorted. It becomes a vehicle for interpersonal conflict and self-righteousness. Controversy tends to make us forget Christ, causing us to become angry, messianic, despairing, and fearful. End quote. Or as another author comments on the uh, statement about a root of bitterness in Hebrews 12.15, sometimes from within an apparently happy church or fellowship, discontent can arise. It may take the form of doctrinal or ethical disagreement. These can be real enough, but often they can provide a smokescreen for personal agendas. The sign is always the sense of bitterness that accompanies it. Disagreement between wise, praying Christians can take place without bitterness. Where that troubling and poisonous bitterness starts to make its presence felt, we should recognize what's going on. When people are outwardly part of the community, but inwardly not completely open to God's love and leading, they are capable of saying and doing things which disgrace themselves and the community." With this comes an unwillingness to really listen carefully. And so there are hasty generalizations. And I mean, you've probably all seen this. Maybe some of you have done this. You, uh, you just o- oversimplify the, the, the views of the person that you disagree with. Sometimes it just boils down to pigeonholing. Oh, that's the framework. Oh, that's the onomy. Oh, that's Klein. Oh, that's Bonson. Oh, that's Shepard. Oh, that's, you know, fill in the blank. And it's like, now I don't even have to think about it anymore because I've got it categorized. Don't we ask... Is that biblical anymore? Can we not learn even from people that we disagree with? And at worst, and way too frequently, it boils down to theological slander. You know, if I was accused of beating my wife, that would be closer to the truth than the accusations that have been made by some against me over the years because I'm a theonomist. I've had a few people over the years come to Bayview after having heard about Bayview at a distance and come up, and I'm so thankful for guileless people. They say, you know, this church isn't at all like what we've been... We we heard that you didn't even believe in forgiveness, that you didn't even preach the gospel of Christ. But you see, it's theological, so everybody's entitled to their opinion, even if it's a slanderous opinion. Brothers, these kind of things shouldn't be. We should listen very carefully before we make any kind of statements. And sometimes that means just keeping our mouths shut for a long period of time. There's a kind of an isolation in our thinking sometimes. Um, I wonder if young ministers today who do have the mixed blessing, and it really is a mixed blessing of the Internet 
as easy as it was for me to hold up in my study in the early days and not do pastoral work because I was studying, I wonder with the hours that it takes to be involved in these discussion groups online and so forth, how much pastoral work is not being done because men are working on the big issues, talking to others, arguing with others. And if you neglect your pastoral duties, my friends, you will be guilty and you will feel guilty and that guilt will become debilitating. It's like a low-grade fever. It doesn't quite knock you out, but it just takes your strength, your freedom, and your joy in the work away. And if you're cranky and grouchy and guilty, you're going to make a great controversialist. Guilty consciences arising from sins of omission provide a rich soil for the nettles of strife and disunity to grow in. Theological precision is great, but as I argued in the last talk, it has to be developed in a pastoral context. My colleague, George Scipione at Bayview, is fond of reminding us that we're forever sharpening and polishing swords that we have no intention of actually using in battle and have even gotten to the place where we mistake the polishing of the weapon for the actual use of that weapon against the enemies of the Lord. Now, I know what you're going to say, but my enemies are the enemies of the Lord. Maybe yes, maybe no. And then there's the really nasty stuff. You get down to the bottom of the food chain, and there's just the petty jealousies and envies that are the common lot of fallen men, even born-again men. Uh, We don't like to talk about this one, but the Scripture does. Think of Aaron and Miriam. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't He also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this, and He was displeased. Envy. Moses against Aaron. I was thinking of this last night when we were singing from Psalm 133, you know, the the image of the anointing oil over Aaron and the symbol of that being the unity of the body. But here's the guy with the anointing oil all over him saying, who made Moses such hot stuff? Sin is always with us. Or Korah and some of his fellow Reubenites who said, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? And remember the comment, it's just, it goes by real fast. Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the Jewish leaders had handed Jesus over to him. How many of the Jewish leaders do you think would admit that? Wasn't it about theology? Wasn't he a blasphemer? Wasn't he one leading the people astray? Wasn't that what it was all about? Well, Pilate had been around the block a few times, and he knew envy when he saw it, and he saw it in those Jewish leaders. Paul warns that an elder must not be a recent convert for this very reason, because he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. As leaders, we're capable of sophisticated theological cover-ups for jealousy, for bitterness, for disappointment, and sometimes for just mean-spiritedness. I've read in public a few times at different gatherings... uh, 
at the presbytery, uh, even as recent, I think, as a year ago, um, when we had a meeting to talk about um, uh, unity, uh, a wonderful passage from Blair's book, The Korean Pentecost and the Sufferings That Follow. And I won't take time to read the whole quote now, but basically he points out that the revival uh, among the Korean Christians in the early part of the, uh, 19th, uh, of the 20th century that came to be known as the Korean Pentecost really began at a, at a prayer meeting where uh, God moved upon the leaders of the church to begin to confess their jealousies, their envies, their hatred and bitterness toward one another. And it's a very striking picture of what a revival, if it ever hits a church like the OPC, is going to look like. Uh, elders confessing their sins to one another, uh, their, um, their jealousies, their envies. This is, the, this is the side of church history that I don't think ever gets in the church history books. You, you read about the theological controversies. You never read about the personal relationships that were the context for those theological controversies. So it's very easy for us at a historical distance to say, these were the good guys, they were standing for the truth, and these were the bad guys, they were watering down the truth. No muss, no fuss, we know which side we want to be on. But in Judgment Day, it may be the story of the Irons controversy and other controversies as well, when God tells us all what was going on behind the scenes. Well, those are some things to think about. Let me then direct your attention to some suggestions in light of that. Um, some of these are strong suggestions. Some of these are mild suggestions for pursuing doctrinal and ethical purity. I don't want anybody to hear me saying truth is unimportant and that we ought to sacrifice truth for unity. I, as naive as it is, and maybe I'm just getting... Um, Old and senile. I, I am getting old and senile, but maybe it's affecting me in this respect as well. But I'd really like us to at least start out by trying to have it all. If we don't get it all along the way, that's God's doing. But for us to decide right at the outset that we have to pick A or B and we can't have them both, then of course we're doomed from the outset. Do we have to choose between purity, truth on the one hand, and peace and unity on the other? I think sometimes, but that ought to be the conclusion of a process rather than the beginning of a process. If we make that decision prematurely, before we've even considered a subject, then we're doomed to failure. Truth before friendship? I read that little phrase in a booklet when I was still in college. And I thought, aha, yeah, that's me, truth before friendship. Perhaps, sometimes, but never without tears. Because, um, but maybe we can find a more excellent way to preserve both. So, here's some suggestions. Now, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to zip through these. First of all, try to cultivate and maintain a sense of proportion. How tightly will we draw our circles of theological and ecclesiastical fellowship? Uh, we have our Westminster Confession of Faith. So if we're ministers in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we've got certain boundary markers already set out there. But as we think of ourselves in the broader church community, uh, how do we relate to churches that uh, hold to the ecumenical creeds, perhaps, but are not Reformed? Uh, or within the 
uh, Presbyterian uh, fold where we have our Westminster standards. Which of the controversial issues are really deal breakers and which ones can we live with and work on while we give ourselves time to come to oneness of mind? I mean, we, uh, we debate eschatology, uh, we debate the days of creation, we debate law versus gospel issues, justification, theonomy, we argue over the continuation of the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. Uh, we can talk about head coverings and the length of women's hair or the New Trinity hymnal versus the Old Trinity hymnal or the frequency of communion or two office versus three office or, I mean, you fill in what other ones. It's been rightly observed that often controversies arise in an attempt to correct a perceived and often real departure from the truth or a confusion or an omission. But often a movement's critique, and often a movement's critique, is the most cogent, that uh, is more cogent than its positive program. And at least sometimes when you look at two sides and you're a third party, you might wonder, are these two really incompatible with one another? Or is there a truth here emphasized and a truth here emphasized that can be brought together in a broader biblical understanding? Can we be enriched by the complementary truths or emphases of some of our brothers? And not all theological issues are equally important. And of course, everybody's going to have to decide which fights they believe before God in conscience they have to fight. But let's not assume that everything has to be fought over. Secondly, be patient. Don't panic. I've become convinced over the years that panic is one of Satan's great tools. You've got to make up your mind right now. You've got to decide right now. You have to have an opinion right now. You have to write a paper or an email message. Take your time. Go slow. Even in theological controversy, remember James' words, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Slow to speak and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Thirdly, whatever it takes, oh, sorry. Do whatever it takes to be able to trust your fellow servants. Now let me say that again. Do whatever it takes to be able to trust your fellow servants. I did not say Trust your fellow servants. I understand as well as you do that trust cannot exist in a vacuum. But rather than saying, since the vacuum is there, I just won't trust my brother, you have to go out of your way to take the steps to fill that vacuum with the kind of personal knowledge and brotherly love that will enable you to trust your brother. Does that mean you will always agree with your brother? Well, think about your friends. Who's your best friend? Do you agree with them every time? No, but you trust them. And that gives a context for your disagreement. So we need to do what it takes. Just think how differently you react when your friend says something off the wall. You're always eager to figure out a way to put the best possible construction on it because they're your friend. But if your enemy or your perceived enemy says something off the wall, aha, I knew it all along. Let's get rid of them. On the other hand, and let me say, this is a very important on the other hand, we all know that the call for trust can be abused. 
When Satan is about to do his worst, he says, trust me. So we can be deceived. Satan does masquerade as an angel of light, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. Fourth, and very important, remember that we are servants together. You've got to watch out for the Elijah syndrome. You remember Elijah when he got depressed and discouraged, thought, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets that are left. He not only fell into that once, he, he actually said words like that twice. You're not the only faithful servant left. And many of those whom you have sharp disagreements with are your brothers. And they make important contributions to the advancement of the kingdom of Christ and the life of God's people within it. You may not know that because you've never been close enough to them, even as members of the same presbytery, even as members of the same session, to see and appreciate those contributions, those gifts. And believe it or not, in the right circumstances, those brothers might even lay down their life for you. They might take a bullet for you. Paul did so very much to advance the cause of Christ and to spread the church throughout the Roman world, but he was acutely aware that he never operated on his own. He was no lone ranger. And I don't have time to read them, but you just punch into your concordance the term fellow and see how often the phrase fellow worker, fellow prisoner, my partner, My fellow worker, my fellow soldier appears in the writings of Paul. He was conscious that he was tied together with others, not only leaders in the church, but members of the church, and that they were all working together. If you're on the same project and you're sweating and toiling and the guy next to you happens to drop his shovel, you're not going to hit him over the head with your shovel. You're going to reach down and pick his shovel up and put it back in his hand so that he can keep on digging with you to accomplish the goal. And that consciousness of being fellow workers should help, at least, protect you from the kind of rivalries that can creep into the kingdom work. Uh, I don't want to name names and get anybody in trouble, but this is, this is not a criticism. But I was just interested when the Presbytery was talking about Ben and Jesse's realignment of duties. There was a lot of discussion about whether you can have you know, two ministers in the same church without causing division and rivalry and that kind of stuff. And we talked that over for a long, long time, and then we voted for the deal, and I'm, get, I'm hopeful that it's going fine. But, but I sat next to George Scipione, who's been my brother for years and my colleague at, at, uh, at Bayview for years. And when they were telling all of the horror stories about guys who can't work together, I leaned over to Skip and I says, I guess we're chopped liver. It is rare. I admit it's rare, but it can be done if the men give themselves to that sense of fellow service. That's why I hate it when somebody says, you're the senior pastor. I just, I'm not the senior pastor. I'm a pastor and Skip's a pastor. And of course, I'm a two-office guy, so the whole session is pastors as far as I'm concerned. But the rivalries can creep in if we don't have a vivid sense that we're in this together, working together. And then finally... Fifthly, brotherly love. This is so obvious, but it's so often overlooked and neglected. (laughs) 
I don't know why, in all of our sophistication, I think we just think that the golden rule is way too simplistic. But brotherly love is what we're called to. Therefore, as God's chosen people, Paul writes in Colossians 3.12, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Wonderful. And this love is more than tolerance. It's been observed that tolerance, as we usually think about it, is too broad and too shallow to answer to the biblical demands. Tolerance is too broad because there are some things that cannot be allowed biblically. But it's also too shallow because Christ calls us to love, not simply to put up with condescendingly our brothers who disagree with us. Well, I have to close because you have to go collect your children and eat your lunch. Um, I hope you'll be able to reflect on these things. I would really appreciate you talking back to me about these or talking to one another. It has not been my purpose to accuse, uh, but to try and think out loud and share with you, my fellow leaders in the church, as well as the broader church, some things that I've at least had to think about over the years and particularly in recent years. And, and if it will save you some time from learning the same, the, the same lessons from your own experience, then, um, then that will be great. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we love your truth. It is our life. It is that precious to us. And we want to contend for the truth in those ways that are appropriate. But we love your people and your kingdom I hope we're growing to love, even in these two days, the glorious picture of the unity of the church. But we need to be able to hold those two things together in perfect unity. And that's where we so often falter and fail. Lord, I pray for myself and for my brothers and and sisters that you would use the things that we've talked about today to, to examine our own hearts and to see if there is any wicked way in us. Lord, deliver us from self-deception. Help us to see ourselves as you see us and then to um, be able to approach that high calling to preserve both the purity and the peace and unity of the church without having to choose one or the other. We're not naive, Lord. We know that as we labor together, even if we do all of the things that you've called us to do, there will be divisions and there will be those who will turn aside. Uh, But we pray that we will not provoke that unnecessarily and that it will be our desire and our accomplishment by your grace to see the church grow up into the fullness that belongs to Christ. And we pray it for his precious sake. Amen. Thank you. You're just...